0: Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. We are in a series called Kingdom Stories, where we're exploring some of the parables that Jesus used to teach about his kingdom in the book of Luke. Join us now as we dive into another story. Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Well, good morning, Today's gospel reading leads us into the realm of the afterlife and the question of what will heaven and hell be like. But did you know that there is actually a whole genre of jokes based around the idea of heaven and hell? They're called pearly gate jokes. And the name's inspired by the description of the New Jerusalem that's found in Revelation twenty one twenty one, where it says the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate being made from a single pearl. Now, you've probably heard one of these jokes before, but just in case you haven't, they go something like this. So Bill Gates dies in a car accident and he finds himself at the pearly gates of heaven being sized up by God. Well, Bill, I'm really confused on this call. I'm not sure whether to send you to heaven or hell. After all, you've been enormously helpful in society by putting a computer in almost every home in America yet you also created that ghastly Windows Vista. (laughs) You know, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to let you decide where you want to go. Bill replied, well, what's the difference between the two? And God said, you know what, I'm willing to let you visit both places briefly and you can make up your own mind. Fine, but where shall I go first? I'll leave it up to you. Okay, then Bill said, "I'll, I'll try hell first. So Bill went to hell and it was a beautiful, clean, sandy beach. Lots of beautiful people playing and frogging in the water. There was food and drink. The weather was perfect. The temperature just right. The sun shining. He was really pleased. He said, this is great. If this is hell, I really want to see heaven. Fine, said God. And off they went. Well, heaven was a place high in the clouds with angels drifting about and they were playing harps and singing. It was nice, but... You know, a a touch boring and not as enticing as hell. So Bill thought for a quick minute and he made his decision. Hmm, I think I prefer hell. Well, fine, said God, as you desire. So Bill Gates went to hell. Well, about two weeks later, God decided to check on the late billionaire to see how he was doing in hell. And when he got there, he found Bill shackled to a wall, screaming amongst hot flames in dark caves, being burned and tortured by demons. How's everything going? He asked Bill. Bill responded with his voice, filled with anguish and disappointment. This is awful, this is nothing like the hell that I visited two weeks ago. I can't believe this is happening. What happened to the beautiful beach and the sunshine and everything else? Oh, said God, that was just the demo version. (laughs) Now, if you were to walk out on the street and ask people what they thought heaven and hell was like, you'd probably get some answers pretty similar to the betrayal in this joke. Maybe shaped by beautiful paintings from the Romantic era, maybe well-written hymns of the past few hundred years. Or, of course, classic movies such as the 1991 hit Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. (laughs) Proof that a sequel can be better than the original movie. Today, we're continuing our sermon series within a series. We're looking at Kingdom Stories, a series on parables as part of our series uh, this year, Walking Through the Gospel of Luke. Now, a parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And Jesus used them to help people understand and remember what the kingdom of God is like. And many of them have become a part of our common vernacular. For example, we speak of someone being a good Samaritan when they help someone out in need. Or we speak of someone being a prodigal when they see the error of their ways and they change how they're behaving However, some of them are less well-known, such as today's parable, known as the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And even though, as the title suggests, the story is at one level about money and how we choose to use it, it's really at its core a story about salvation. In other words, being set free from the consequences of our sin. And it could just as easily be a story about a politician with her power, or an academic with his brains, or a sports star with her athletic ability, or even a preacher with his eloquence. In fact, it could actually be about anyone with some kind of resources or skills, which, if we stop and think about it, is all of us. You see, how we live our lives on this earth matters. In fact, our destiny in the afterlife depends somewhat on what we do in the here and now. So let's turn to our reading from Luke chapter 16 and see what God would say to us today. And as always, it's worth noting the context of our story. Just prior to this passage, Jesus has been teaching about money. And in chapter 16, verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's a pretty clear warning against letting the accumulation of wealth be your life's goal. And then in verse 14, we see exactly who it is that he's aiming these remarks at. Luke writes The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then almost immediately after this, We get our parable about Lazarus and the rich man. It's no coincidence then that we get a story about a rich man who loved money and who had a hard heart. Jesus is trying to show what matters most in this life, and it's not wealth, but rather what someone does with the resources that God has given to them. Now, the Pharisees should already know this. After all, they're expert scholars and teachers of the scriptures. Uh, the scriptures that we know as the Old Testament. And within these writings, they'd have come across the following passages. First of all, Hosea chapter 6, where God tells the Israelites, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. And finally, Micah chapter six. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly. Before your God. And there are countless other passages in the Old Testament about how we are to treat the poor and the broken and the oppressed and those on the margins of society with generosity. But the Pharisees have hard hearts. And so Jesus tells them a story about a man just like them, a lover of money. Verse 19 There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. He was a man who had every opportunity to make something worthwhile of his life, but who spent his wealth on himself alone and spared none for the beggar at his gate. Verse 20 and 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We have a parable of contrasts. And the first contrast is what they're covered in. You see, the rich man is clothed in purple, a colour of cloth that only the truly wealthy could have afforded. But Lazarus is clothed in sores and he's too weak to work or sit up. And so he begs. They are at completely different ends of the spectrum. Imagine today, perhaps the wealthy banker in his fine suit, pulling out of his downtown home in his Mercedes and driving past the same homeless guy on the street each day, day after day, year after year. Well, not surprisingly, we read in verse 22, the poor man died. Lazarus's life would likely have been fairly short by our modern standards. But in something that would have been a surprise to the Pharisees who were listening, Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Poverty and sickness to them would have been a sign of someone who was a sinner and who deserved to head, well, you know, in the other direction. Well, we don't know how long it was until this happened, but then we read the rich man also died and was buried. Now, he probably had a much fancier burial than Lazarus in an expensive above-the-ground tomb with professional mourners and huge crowds there for his funeral. But the second of our contrast is quite the reversal of fortune. In verse 23, we read, And in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. You see, while Lazarus is carried by the angels to be with Father Abraham, no less, the rich man is taken to Hades, which probably represents a waiting place for the dead before the final resurrection and is a taste of hell itself. Tormented in this terrible place, he cries out for help. Verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and just cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. We can see clearly how the tables have turned. What a contrast. Lazarus, who begged for food at the gate of this rich man for all those years, is the one who can now bring him relief, or at least so this man thinks. And we can also see how some of our ideas about hell have come about the ideas of flame and torment. As we saw in the Pearly Gates joke at the beginning, they're straight out of scripture. But remember, that this is a parable and not a historical account. As a parable, it's intended to teach principles, not to give an exhaustive picture of the afterlife. The rich man was in eternal torment. Massive eternal equity was underway. As one person put it, the eternal state will be perfectly equitable for everyone, though some will experience incredible reversals. While we cannot be certain that hell will be a place of fire and flames, we can be certain that there will one day be judgment and justice for all. And not a judgment determined by the world standards, but by the true judge, God himself. And that according to Jesus, some people will be consigned to a place of eternal punishment because of the choices that they have made in this life. And so Abraham responds in verses 25 and 26. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The rich man received his rewards on earth. But now in eternity, because of his unwillingness to heed the scriptures, he'll experience the consequences of his choices. He exemplifies Jesus' woe in the Sermon on the Plain that we looked at earlier in our journey through Luke. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, says Jesus. And he had had chance after chance to change his ways. Remember, every day he feasted while Lazarus rotted away at his gate. But his consistent choices revealed his very heart and his lack of faith in God. And after a lifetime of chances, time finally ran out and he condemned himself by his lack of obedience and also his lack of action. Well, changing tack and for the first time in the story, being concerned about someone other than himself, the rich man pleads for his family. Verse 27, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Worried about his brothers, who presumably are also choosing to live apart from God, he asks Abraham to send someone to warn them. But as Abraham points out, God's already done that. He's given them the scriptures, the law and the prophets. And as the apostle Paul explains so well in Romans chapter 7, these bring us face to face with our sins and our ability to save ourselves and therefore our need for a saviour. But the rich man never really thought about any of that. And it seems his brothers are making the same mistake. While not willing to give up yet, the rich man makes one more desperate plea. Verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Surely, if someone was to rise again, then they'll believe, right? I mean, who wouldn't believe in someone who literally rose from the dead? Well, sadly, Jesus is speaking about his own death here. And even more sadly, those listening and many after them will not believe it happened. He'll die and three days later, he'll rise from the dead. He will defeat death itself. He will pay the price for our sin that we couldn't pay. You see, much like the great chasm that exists between Hades and heaven that Abraham speaks of in verse 26, there is a great chasm between humans and God that cannot be crossed by mankind. No person can bridge the gap by force of will or deed of heart or power of mind. The depth of our sin is too vast. And the holiness of God is so far and above us in our efforts that we cannot cross the divide. As R.C. Sproul puts it, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love or mercy, mercy, mercy or wrath, wrath, wrath or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. Holy, the whole earth is full of his glory. The good news though is that by his life, death and resurrection, Jesus bridges the gap and we can be made righteous. All who repent of their sin and turn to him are saved. As the apostle Paul puts it, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But as Abraham says in verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Often we think that if only we saw some sign, then we'd believe. Or if only our spouse or our child or our friend or our work colleague would see God work a miracle, then they would turn to him. But, you know, thousands saw Jesus perform miracles and they turned their back on him. And many saw the proof of his resurrection from the dead and they decided that they would cover it up or just simply ignore it. And so nothing changed in their lives. And death was a rude awakening to them. And so the challenge to us is, will we hear God's word to us today and respond in faith, believing that he rose again from the dead? And accepting the grace that he offers to us in forgiving our sins. As pastor and commentator Kent Hughes puts it, a surface reading of this parable might indicate that the rich man missed salvation because he was not generous enough with his money. But that is not the case. The true reason for his damnation was his disregard for God's word and his rejection of the Lord. He did not believe the scriptures, and he certainly did not think his disregard would land him in hell. To think that someone like him, living in such abundance, can miss heaven. And yet, without Christ, such is the case. No, money cannot save us. Status cannot save us. Education cannot save us. Our athletic ability cannot save us. Our deeds cannot save us. And yet, and yet, friends, how we use these things, these God given resources, is an indication of whether or not we have received the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. God knows our hearts, friends, and it doesn't matter how much we justify ourselves before other people, only one person's opinion accounts, and it's that of Jesus, of God himself. One final thought. It's interesting to note that the name Lazarus in Hebrew means the one whom God helps. I don't think that this is a coincidence. You see, without God's help, we're all lost, like the prodigal son in need of the father's help. So don't wait too long. Cry out to him now and give him your everything now, not just one hour a week on Sunday. Give him everything and follow him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and even with all of your bank accounts. Because how we live our lives on this earth matters. Yes, our destiny in the afterlife depends on what we believe and what we do in the here and now. So accept his grace and live a life of loving obedience to him and to his word in grateful response. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come now and move in our hearts. Come by your Holy Spirit. And for anyone who's listening today, who has never received the grace and mercy of Jesus... Would you come and would you help them to reach out to you, to cry out to you and ask you to come into their lives and to help them to live a life of loving and grateful response to the mercy that they have been shown in being set free from sin and from death. And we pray the same for each one of us. Let us not have hard hearts, but have soft hearts full of compassion for all those around us that they may encounter you, that they may encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they may come to know and experience your love also. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.